0: So, I'll, I'll give a start. I'm Sabina Alkire um, and direct the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative, which is a research center in the Department of International Development, which used to be called Queen Elizabeth House. Um, and uh, the session here is on measuring global poverty. Um, I'm very open to the way you wish to proceed. My thought had been. To share for maybe 45 minutes or an hour and then take discussion. But if there are things that occur to you, then uh, please, by all means, do uh, chip in before that. The only request from the organizers has been that if you do have a comment or query, if you might wait for a mic um, before articulating it, as this is also being webcast or podcast. And so others will then be able to hear what you have to say. Is that all right? Good. So the topic here is uh, measuring global poverty um, from maps and villages to policy. Um, and what I would like to do is to describe a new approach to poverty measurement, um, which I've been privileged to develop with a colleague, James Foster, and which is taking um, uh, having a bit of momentum. Uh, both in national uptake by different countries and in international uptake. And indeed next Tuesday we have an event, a side event at the General Assembly of the UN um, with over 20 governments pushing for this measure to be adopted in a post-2015 framework which will look at global poverty. So I thought I'd give you a bit of a sense of what the methodology is, how it stands alongside as a sister measure to income poverty Um, which is the dominant way of measuring poverty across the world. Um, A couple slides on the international measure, which has been used since 2010 by the United Nations Development Programme. And then some on the countries that are adopting or have adopted the measure. And finally, a little bit about this policy network, uh, which launched here in Oxford in June, to which our group is the Secretariat, and which is hosting this event. Uh, The press release just went out today if you're interested, um, uh, for the Tuesday uh, event in New York. But first of all, why do we need to go beyond an income measure of poverty? As you may know, since 1990, we have compared developing countries using the $1.25 a day measure. Um, And that is calculated by the World Bank for all countries for which there are data, which are fewer, actually, than the countries for which there are data on other dimensions of poverty. But there have been a few challenges in the practical use of the income poverty measure, uh, even as a very crude yardstick to compare countries. And one is that it is is only available at a national level. It cannot be broken down by region, by ethnicity, um, by other subgroups of the population. But the other is that income poverty measures, whether it is the global $1.25 a day measure, or whether it is national income poverty measures, which most every country actually uses and which can be broken down by region and by ethnicity. These measures of income poverty don't necessarily reflect other kinds of deprivation like malnutrition. Um, and I'm an economist, I got my degree here in the university and I was taught that they should. I was taught that income is a good proxy for other kinds of deprivation people suffer. But now, in the past 10 years, we have a lot more micro-data from uh, 127 different countries. Um, And we can see, actually, that the mismatches between income poverty and other kinds of deprivations are very large, not only in developed countries, but also in Europe. And so let me just give you a couple of the motivating examples which have led us to go beyond income poverty. And let's start in Europe. In Europe we have a high degree of market penetration, we can buy a lot of things with the money that we have. And so here we would think that if we are income poor, um, then we would have a greater likelihood of being materially deprived, not having a roof that doesn't leak, not being able to eat meat or fish or the vegetarian equivalent twice a week, not being able to take a two week holiday if we would so choose. And we would also think that the people who are jobless, uh, who are either unemployed and seeking unemploy- employment, or considerably underemployed, given their household size, would be income poor. But in work um, initially, uh, the first paper was in 2004, so this is quite recent work, um, there, they have discovered that there is a mismatch in Europe, um, even between these three quite narrowly defined indicators of income poverty. Of material deprivation and of joblessness. And this led within Europe to the adoption of an EU 2020 measure which looks at all three of these indicators together. And to explain why, um, these are the people, uh, the millions of people who are income poor by the relative poverty measures in the 26 countries um, that were used in this book. These are the people who are jobless. And these are the people who are materially deprived. But of all of these millions of people, only the small percentage of them are deprived in all of these quite economic indicators at the same time. So that within Europe has led to a lot of discussions, because we would think we need to understand uh, people's behaviors. We need to understand what money does and doesn't buy. Moving now from income, uh, from from Europe to developing countries, since the year 2000, there have been a set of agreed Millennium Development Goals. Do you guys know of those? Yeah. So, um, in the year 2008, François Bourguignon, who is, is now or was sorry previously chief economist of the World Bank, Stefan Durkin, who is now um, both at Oxford and chief economist of DFID, and a group of other economists did a study where they looked at the reduction of income poverty, which in all of the graphs is on the left-hand axis, the vertical axis. And they looked at the reduction of other kinds of deprivations, so children who are undernourished, children who have completed primary school, um, female to male enrollments. And they looked at these for about 12 indicators for over 60 countries, and they expected to see what you sort of see in the upper right hand, which is an association. The the stronger the reduction of income poverty, the stronger the reduction in other kinds of deprivations. But across all of the different indicators, they did not find any significant association except for the one you see in the upper right quadrant um, of underweight. And they concluded that that was actually uh, perhaps a fiat rather than um, a statistically significant finding. Um, and so this led them, uh, this and other studies led them to conclude that there is little or no correlation both between a reduction in income poverty and through a similarly large data uh, exercise. Through the growth rates at the national level and reductions in non-monetary millennium development goals. And again, this was a puzzling finding. This is not what is supposed to happen. This is not what we are trained is the relationship between um, the different kinds of poverty and deprivation people face. But it it certainly is, is the evidence. And finally, in terms of growth, I'll just give you one example. They did many, many countries, but this is India, which liberalized in 1991 um, and has had strong growth rates even to the present day. But in 1998-99, 47% of children under three were malnourished. And seven years later, after 14 years of liberalization and more than uh, nearly 20 years of strong growth, only 46% of children, Um, so the malnutrition of children had dropped by a mere 1%. And so again, this finding, this disjunction between economic growth and all of the benefits it is supposed to bring to people, and actually the lived lives of the poor, which are the focus of our work, is quite uh, striking. And this led Nobel laureate Amartya Sen and his co-author Jean Brez, a very inspiring economist, um, to do a significant study, which they published in July this year, a book called An Uncertain Glory, India and its contradictions, which points out that India has made stellar progress in the economic sphere. But even compared with its neighbor Bangladesh, whose income is one half that of India on average, its social achievements in malnutrition, in education, and vaccination are well below that of Bangladesh, of Nepal, um, and of other countries in South Asia as well as China. And indeed, in comparison with sub Saharan Africa, India has much more higher rates of open defecation. So this, these studies have created the space and the demand for new measures of multidimensional poverty. Um, we have a lot of unidimensional measures, like infant mortality, like children out of school, like malnutrition rates, um, people out of work, But what we don't know is the people who are deprived in a number of these at the same time. And it matters for policy, because if somebody wakes up in the morning and her baby's crying, uh, she doesn't know if she's going to have work that day, Uh, the food is insecure, there's some violence in the neighborhood, then different projects, whether they are private sector, government, or community projects, to try to address one of these may not be able to reach her because of the interconnectedness of her deprivations. And a 50 country study indeed showed that effective uh, development interventions to reach the Millennium Development Goals looked at people's deprivations together. And so there has been a need to not only look at the indicators one by one, but to provide an overview. Um, And so what have we done? Together with my colleague James Foster, who is a research associate here at Oxford and a professor in George Washington University in Washington, DC. He, when he was a graduate student, published the most widely um, used income poverty measure, the foster Bureau thorbeck Index. And we together then extended that to the multidimensional space um, in the year 20, 2007, uh, published in 2011. So if you make your measure, first you think of what are the dimensions of poverty. How do you know these? You may talk with poor people who are the experts. You may look at the data that exists. You may look at the national development plan at universal human rights, um, or at some uh, project that you are working on. And then for each indicator, you select a cutoff. How much do you need not to be poor? It might be based on scientific evidence. What is the body mass index, which is agreed for being underweight or severely underweight as an adult, or it could be uh, uh, again generated by the community. In Bhutan, when we went to the field with the national poverty measure, they told us we don't need a protected latrine. You know unprotected is fine for us in this climate. We need the money to put our children into school an extra couple of years. So uh, there are different ways of setting these. And then for each person in the community, when you have your indicators, and when you have the cutoffs for each of them, then you look at each person's life, and you say, where do you have enough? And in which indicators are you deprived? Um, and building from there, you identify who is poor, because maybe one indicator doesn't indicate poverty. And then you calculate a poverty measure. So let me give you an example. This is a real example um, of a measure which we jointly developed Uh, myself and an Argentinian postdoc, back in Argentina now with her her family, uh, for the United Nations Development Program. It was launched in 2010 and we've updated it every year. We uh, are just working this week on finalizing the figures that will be released in 2014. So, um, this measure has ten indicators in three dimensions. Health, Education and Living Standard. And you are deprived if somebody in your household for whom we have data is malnourished. You're deprived if a child has died. You're deprived if no member of your household has five years of schooling. If a child is not attending school up to the age at which they would uh, complete class 8. And if you do not own, um, you, you cook with wood, dung or charcoal. Um, you don't have improved sanitation or clean drinking water you don't have electricity your floor is dirt sand or natural and you don't own more than one of the following assets a radio, a television, a telephone including a mobile phone uh, a refrigerator, a bicycle or a motorcycle and if you own a car or a truck you are not deprived of assets (laughs) so based on these ten indicators which were Basically the only indicators about which we had data for more than 100 developing countries in 2009 when we first constructed the index. You make a deprivation profile for each person. This is Stephanie. She lives in Madagascar. At the age of 35, she's a grandmother. Um, She lives in a very small place that's right behind her with her daughter and grandchild because her son-in-law at the moment um, when we visited her was in prison. She's deprived in years of schooling, malnutrition, and five of the six indicators. So now, for each person in the population, we have a score. But who is poor? If you have one deprivation, is it enough? You could have, um, for example, you could cook with wood, charcoal, or gum, but maybe you have a good chimney. And we actually didn't have data on chimneys so it could actually not be a health risk for eyes or for lungs which is the fourth leading cause of of preventable death in developing countries or you could have a low body mass index below 18.5 but that's because you are a fashion model not because you are malnourished so it's a bit of a life choice Um, and you could have less than five years of schooling but be a self-made millionaire so one indicator, one deprivation does not signify poverty. This is why we take a multidimensional view and we identify people as poor if they face deprivations in one third of the weighted indicators at the same time. So this is Grace. She lives in a slum in Nairobi, uh, outside Nairobi, um, and she's deprived um, in nutrition and in four of the living standard indicators. So her deprivation score is 39%. She's deprived in more than one-half of the indicators. And so she's identified as multidimensionally poor. So from a country, you build the deprivation score of every person. And then you identify people as poor if they're deprived in one-third or more of the indicators. And the next and last step is to create an index. And the index is, is simple but rigorous. I can talk about the axiomatic properties if you are interested, Um, but it is the product of a percentage of people who are poor, because they're deprived in one third or more of the indicators, times the average percentage of indicators they experience deprivations in at the same time. In Grace's case it was 39%, but on average in Kenya um, in 2006, people were deprived in 50% of the indicators at the same time. Um, and so it's uh, a multiplicative index. The MPI or M0 is H, the head count, times A, the intensity. Um, and that makes a measure uh, which has, as I said, a lot of properties. Now, our work is quantitative. We are economists. Um, we do have sociologists on our team. Um, but we also always ground test what we do. Um, and also work with others who do so, to learn from the field, to learn from qualitative experiences. So this is Puba. She's a farmer. She's 72 years old. She lives in Bhutan, a little country between India and China. This is her home. She cooks with wood, but everybody in her community cooks with wood, rich or poor. She doesn't have electricity, but nobody in her community has electricity or a road. It's a four-hour, very strenuous walk. I'm I'm in good shape, but it's a tough walk to get to her house. She has a wood floor, so she's not deprived in floor, but the indicator isn't accurate, because in her case it's the roof that matters. Her roof leaks, it's made of bamboo, it's an 8 or 9 hour walk for a 72 year old woman to get the bamboo, to carry it back, to split it, to weave a new roof, and she has to do it every year. So an international indicator is not um, always precisely accurate at the local level, which is why we advise national indicators that I'll come to in a moment. She's not deprived in assets. She has um, more than one of the lists that I said. She has a radio and a mobile phone. Um, She does, as I said, use use cooking fuel. Um, Her granddaughter, who's 12 years old, however, is the only child in that village that does not attend school. Um, And that is a significant uh, deficit for her. A poverty index also leaves a lot of the nobility of people out whether it's the values that they teach their children, in this case, the generosity, that was our lunch, um, or uh, the, the, in a sense, in, in her case, um, the happiness, the, I don't have a picture of her, um, the uh, serenity and, and joy that she experiences as quite a spiritual woman. Um, but a poverty measure that's an international, however crude it is, does have some resonance when we go to the field, if it's in Indonesia, if it's in um, uh, Kyrgyzstan, or in other places. So a couple findings from the international measure, and then I'll show you some national examples uh, before we close. All of my work is done in teams, and I'm very grateful to all of the co-authors, who tend to be either a few postdocs, but they tend to be students and there are students not only here in Oxford, but the youngest was a 21 year old in Peru, somebody found for us. Um, somebody, it, we work across time zones, so we have uh, students in different areas meeting by Skype um, and uh, collaborating on, on this, and we triple check their work, um, and thus far we have not, um, when we finish our work, it is, it is submitted as an official measure um, based on theirs. So, for the international measure, um, we use existing data that are free and publicly available, um, and I won't go into them, um, but to say that the data constraints have been very significant for our work, um, and uh, the frequency and the detail of data in developing countries is really a problem. We have data from the stock market every hour, data on unemployment, inflation every quarter. Um, But these kind of poverty data most countries get every five years. um, And that's not enough to really see changes over time. So the measure we released in 2013 um, covers 104 countries and 5.4 billion people. um, Most of them in low and middle income countries and that's what the measure was designed for. I'll show you a couple of the findings that got some interest. One is that you would think that most acutely, multidimensionally poor people would live in low-income countries. Um, But a friend, Andy Sumner, who's in London, had shown that most income poor people live in middle-income countries. And so we looked at that in our data. And we also find that most uh, multidimensionally poor people do not live in in low-income countries. They live in countries like India, which is a middle-income country, like Indonesia, like Mozambique, um, countries that have a higher income per capita, and yet have not been able to control the destitution and suffering of many of their citizens. And we do this because aid is mainly given to people in low-income countries. And so those in lower-middle-income countries or upper-middle-income countries largely um, are not benefits of official development roles. The second, I think this is is an interesting slide. This slide shows the percentage of people who are poor in each country. So in Niger, 92% of people are poor. In India, it's 54%. In China, it's 15%. Um, I don't know what countries you're interested in. I was just in Nicaragua, um, and there it's it's just under 30%. Um, But the interesting thing about the MPI is we also have this figure of the intensity. And that hadn't been computed before we did it. And it's a bit of a sad story because what you see is that there's a relationship in that the countries that have the highest percentage of people who are poor, in those countries each poor person is on average deprived in more dimensions at the same time. So Niger not only has 92% of people poor, but each poor person is deprived in 66, two-thirds of the indicators I shared with you. Um, And so that's a very big um, incentive to look at the intensity of poverty uh, and not just at the headcount. We also find that the global MPI gives a different story than income poverty. So, here we have the 71 countries for which we have income poverty, um, and the income levels are at the black dots. And we see a general relationship in that the low MPI countries have low income poverty. This is the headcount of people who are multidimensionally poor. But you see a country like Ethiopia, they say that um, there is uh, just over 50% of people are income poor. Um, but nearly 90% are multidimensionally poor. So we see quite a big divergence um, in some countries between the percentage of people who are poor by different measures. Which is why we say this is a sister. We need them both. I believe very much in in the need to measure income poverty. I would like an income, I would like all poor people to have an income. But we also need to look at these other dimensions. So that gives you a bit of an overview of the global findings, but the interest in this methodology, particularly at the national level, is that not only can you have uh, some global findings, but you can zoom in and see some details that are relevant uh, for policy. Um, And so just first to show this to you um, uh, using the measure, the national measure that you've learned, Um, and then I'll give you some country examples. So one of the features of the measure is it respects an axiom or principle called subgroup decomposability. So you can break it down into all of the states or provinces uh, of a country and add the measures back up and they make up the national measure. You can't do that with a Gini index of inequality, for example. So uh, these are the 104 countries for which we have measures. And as you see, for 669 subnational regions, we've also computed the poverty. So we can go within DRC Congo, we can go within Ethiopia, we can go within Mali, Burkina Faso, Guinea, Sierra Leone, and really look at much more detail at the maps of poverty. But the other interesting thing is uh, we can go down and see how each indicator has changed, or the levels (coughs) of deprivation in each indicator. So just to give an example, this is Nepal in 2006 and 2011. It reduced its poverty a great deal by nearly 21%. And we can break Nepal around down by all of its subnational regions to see their levels of poverty in 2011 and their rates of change from 2006. And then we can see at the national level how Nepal reduced poverty. These are those 10 indicators I showed you And it really did a good job on malnutrition and on child mortality. 2006 was the year of the peace accord in Nepal. Um, And most of the living standard indicators also changed a great deal. And then what's really interesting, if you're a policymaker um, uh, working at a provincial level, is we can do that for each state. Now, this is a bunch of of detail and blurry lines. But if you are the governor of Central Turai, you're very interested that you get credit for the uh, kinds of accomplishments that you've done. And it's been this level of detail which is consistent, again, which adds up to the national measure, uh, which has made national governments interested. And the final uh, point has been, because we look at intensity, we are able to look at very, very poor countries like Ethiopia, where perhaps They can't reduce their headcount of poverty. They can't reduce the percentage of people who are poor very quickly. But they made tremendous progress between 2000 and 2005, and 2000 and 2010, in reducing the intensity, the average percentage of deprivations a poor person experienced. And we can celebrate that success, even if um, they still have a high percentage of people who are poor. So that's the international example. All of the data tables are on the website. Um, We also have country profiles for each of the 104 countries. And we have interactive maps where you can look at a map um, of each indicator as well as of the countries overall. And then we have, oh there's a picture of Puba. That's Puba, the woman I was showing you. Um, We have case studies with uh, different families to really help us to understand the strengths and the oversights of our work so now moving on to national measures, <coughs> um, I just wanted to give you an idea of what for me has been a very interesting and exciting observation which has been um, how different country communities are taking this kind of an approach to poverty and making it their own so um, when James Foster and I did this work, it was—sorry, um, this is just—it uh, uh, was for the government of Mexico um, because they were a concrete example, and our academic research is often spurred by working with research users. Um, and in 2009, um, using our methodology, uh, Mexico released an official multidimensional poverty measure. And Gonzalo Hernández Nikona presented it here in June. He'll present it next Tuesday at the United Nations. Um, and what they did was they used a law. Mexico passed the general law of social development, which required them to move to a multidimensional poverty measure, um, where income gets 50% of the weight, and the social rights, <coughs> um, of which there are six in their constitution now, um, get equal weight and they map their society. They look at people who are not deprived in any of the six indicators that they've chosen, and they look at the people who are below the income poverty and those who are above. And basically, if you have at least one social deprivation and if your income is below the poverty line, you are considered poor by Mexico's national measure. And they also look at people who are extreme poor Their income is below what you need to buy a basket of food. And they experience three social deprivations. And the aim of public policy is to take all the different groups up to that green area, which they call, by the very technical term, of Nirvana. (laughs) Um, And so what they do is they report their measure. 2009, they released this using data from 2008, and you could see Um, for different groups, the national group and the indigenous group, the levels of poverty. And you could see that the indigenous people have much more extreme poverty, 39%, than the national, which was 10%. For Mexico, it was a very politically sensitive and important decision to release that information, um, uh, because it had not been public before. And then they've updated it twice, in 2010 and in 2012 update of 2012 came in July this year Um, and they could show that um, the different dimensions moved differently Um, and they can show uh, how the poverty had changed and what they it has energized that government and it's seen a change of government uh, from a more left-leaning to a more right-leaning government and the poverty measure has uh, survived the elections, which is a requirement for the countries we work with that it be designed to do so, is that it is being used very much to uh, inform the policy strategies. Um, For example, their new national development plan reflects the indicators. And it's supported by different opposing political parties, because at the end of the day, poverty shouldn't be an issue of the left or the right. Poor people should have all of our attention and concern. Um, and they also find that a measurement uh, that combines income and multidimensional and other dimensions in the Mexican context um, is very useful to uh, guide both economic policy and social policy. Most governments separate income and multidimensional poverty, but Mexico does them together. And so here's an example. This is the Minister of Social Development in Mexico, um, and his group has started a crusade against the indicator, I don't know if you noticed, hunger did not go down in in their poverty measures. So they started a crusade against uh, food insecurity to try to make sure that that indicator uh, changes. Another example is the government of Mexico, um, uh, who released their measure in August 2011. And their measure is based on their national development plan. Each of their 15 indicators um, from five dimensions reflects um, objectives that the national government has set out of things it would like to do for its citizenry. And it has been able to track reductions um, over time and to show strong reductions. And it is also, I think, very bravely set a target to by next year, 2014, getting multidimensional poverty down to 22 and 1 half percent. Um, And they've put numbers of how many people um, have gone out of poverty since they launched the measure, which is 1.3 million. So not only do they use this to track changes over time, but really to coordinate between parts of government. They have a committee. Um, Delegates are not permitted. Every minister has to attend. That's President Santos. Um, That's my my co-founder of OFI, uh, James Foster at the most recent meeting of that uh, ministerial committee. And they at at the level of ministers, they're not economists. So they just look at red, green, or yellow. Where is their indicator? Um, And if they are red, then what can they do really to focus on these uh, deprivations that are continuing to plague people and are not uh, responding to the current policies? And they're looking at that across ministries to try to work together and to celebrate successes. I'll just run through some other slides. The government of El Salvador will launch their measure in March and they've done a two-year process talking with poor people and communities to see what poverty means to them. And what's been interesting in El Salvador, I think quite unsurprisingly if you know the country, is that security and violence has come up as a key feature of poor people's lives. But also leisure. Poor people say we have no place for our children to play. Uh, We have no time, we're so busy running trying to keep body and soul together. There's no time for relationships. Um, And it's been interesting uh, to see how uh, that has and hasn't been um, taken up. There's a lot of discussion about those measures by the quote-unquote experts on poverty. Um, uh, That is the, the technical people in government. But it's been a very useful exercise to really have the insights of poor communities all across the country about their situation. Chile will launch its um, official measure in December um, and it appointed a commission. Um, and what's interesting is it brings together civil society, academics, and both political parties again to make a measure that will survive an election. Um, and, um, and then within nations, there are also interesting examples. This is a state government but has, the state has more people than the country of Chile, um, Minas Gerais in Brazil, um, which has a, a very integrated development program they call Travesia. Um, and they actually now use a multidimensional poverty measure both for allocating resources and for designing the composition of responses that Travesia gives to the different communities. And then uh, there are other countries, um, Iraq, China, Interesting thing in China is that they are including environmental data um, and merging data on environmental uh, disasters in the Wuling Mountain region, one of their poverty priority areas, where they're piloting uh, multidimensional poverty index. Um, so uh, a number of countries are in process of exploring, and what's interesting for us as an academic group is to see how their innovations build on and expand um, the technologies that we've done and also how they bring us back problems that we have to address um, and and design new methodologies for. Finally, there there have been some applications of the measure which have not been on poverty. So um, together with IFPRI and USAID, we did a Women's Empowerment and Agriculture Index, which is rolled out in 19 countries. And I've had the deep privilege of working with the government of Bhutan in the development and the updating of their Gross National Happiness Index. that was first released in 2008 and then updated with a new methodology in 2011. Um, So that is a little bit about the need for a uh, multidimensional poverty measure, why income poverty is not enough, either as a global measure, because you can't break it down, and also it doesn't track other kinds of deprivations. And it's also a little bit about the national interest in having something besides an income poverty measure to uh, reflect uh, policy successes in a sense. Um, And the motivation is multiple. My personal motivation was out of working with Amartya Sen's capability approach and this ethical view which understands poverty to be the different things that batter poor people's lives. I did my doctoral work in Pakistan women's income generation projects and then measuring women's empowerment but what struck me was how interconnected the different challenges women face are and that has led me to try to do better measures of what actually they are facing at the same time but then there are also effectiveness uh, gains um, as well as as you saw political incentives a government wants to see the results of its policy before it faces elections use an income poverty measure you put kids in school it doesn't change income The kids have to grow up get a job and then your income poverty measure changes if you have a multidimensional poverty measure that includes children in school it changes before the next election so there are also um, pragmatic considerations so just to close um, I'd like to share with you a little bit about what we did when we launched a network here in June um, there are many governments now working or interested in exploring multi-dimensional poverty measures. We are a teeny tiny team teen here with four or five postdocs and myself. Um, completely overwhelmed. We love what we do, but it's a little bit much. So um, a south-south network was the answer. And so I just got an email today from Vietnam. Um, a Mexican and a Colombian representative flew to Vietnam. Brazil just wrote, five African governments went to Brazil to learn from their measurement work. And there's a deep interchange of Mm -hmm. people learning from people um, how to do it. Uh, They asked us to be the secretariat because we are academic and supposedly neutral, neither from any political party. And we had folks from very, very divergent political views here uh, to talk about poverty. Um, So what they did one of the outcomes. President Santos from the government of Colombia came, um, and they agreed to co-host this event that we are having on Tuesday at the General Assembly as a side event. There was also an address by Professor Marty Sen um, on gender, um, and then uh, everything from lectures to garden parties, uh, as you would expect. And today, we've sent out our press release for the event on Tuesday. Um, where with the Secretary of State of Germany, Ministers from all of the countries I've mentioned, plus the Philippines, um, and the OECD, the World Bank, and the Vice President of the World Bank, Assistant Secretary General of UNDP, um, and the head of OECD, the DAC, Uh, we will be having an event to call for a new global poverty measure um, that looks across the deprivations poor people experience at the same time, and to have this taken up after 2015 as a headline indicator. To give busy policy makers an incentive to reduce these deprivations, just as they have done quite effectively in reducing income poverty. Um, and so these are, in a sense, the, the, the uh, priorities that came out not just from our little group uh, of academics here, but from uh, our colleagues and uh, friends in, in different countries. So that's a little bit what I wanted to share. I've finished um, in time for there to be a discussion, sharing your own experiences, which I'd be interested in, um, questions if you have them. And the only request is that you use a mic so that others joining us uh, from outside Oxford can here.